John chapter 4. I mentioned in the sermon this morning the woman at the well, and I thought to myself when I um, selected Romans 6.26 as my sermon, um, I thought to myself, well, I'll mention her, and then we'll go look at her in the second service. A wonderful and very well-known passage of Scripture, tons to learn here. Uh, we can't do it all. But if you notice in verse 7, we'll pick up in verse 7. I'm going to read from John 4, 7 through 19. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. So the previous verse says, Jesus was weary from his journey, and he thus sat by the well. So here is Jesus at a well, and here comes this woman. Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So they're on their way to Jerusalem. Then the woman of Samaria... um, Excuse me, he's leaving Judea, going back to Galilee... Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? And here's another reality. For men, especially known public rabbis, teachers, have nothing to do with women as well in public like this. So this is, in one sense, this is socially scandalous. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would have given you living water. Man, went from natural water to spiritual water pretty fast there, didn't he? The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water in the well will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you truly spoke. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, if we kept reading, we'd find out that she then asks a theological question about worship and acceptable worship which is an intriguing thing as we read through this section. But notice that Jesus meets this woman uh, in verse 7 and 8. He meets this woman, and I want to note four things about this. 
And a woman, excuse me, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. Note the time of day that this occurred from verse 6. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So it's early in the, in the day. The sixth hour would be 6 a.m., uh, women usually came in the early morning for water because it was cooler. And a question might, we might ask is, why is she alone? Uh, these are just interesting facts to note. Though the text does not tell us the significance of this, there is a hint at it in verses 16 through 19. Let's read those verses where we read, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said I have no husband, for you have five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. This woman was uh, most likely a social outcast due to her soiled, sin-stained, loose-moraled, hurt-filled life. And note also that Jesus speaks with a woman in public and a woman known for her immorality. Doesn't seem that. She's probably alone because she's ostracized from the culture. Speaking with a woman, especially by a known rabbi, was against cultural norms of the day, but it's not a violation of the moral law of God. So Jesus transgressed man's law in order to obey God's. And even Jesus' disciples ended up being amazed with what he does. Look at, you can see this in verse 27. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you, what do you, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Though they thought that way. So you see what our Lord's doing? He's transgressing cultural bounds to get to this needy sinner. He doesn't allow the cultural expectation to get him to not pursue the salvation of this soul. He's willing to go where others were not, weren't willing to go. And aren't you grateful? He was willing to invade your life and to turn you inside out and change you. Note also that Jesus speaks with a Samaritan woman in 722 B.C. The northern kingdom of Israel was captured by the Assyrians, who ended up intermarrying with Jews. That's where the Samaritans came from. So it's Assyrians intermarrying with Jews, and they became the eyesore of the Jews. They lived in the promised land. They were mixed marriages, and they produced a mixed-up form of Old Testament religion. They accepted the five books of Moses, but that was it. They actually built a temple one time and a rival temple to the, the temple in Jerusalem. The Jews despised the Samaritans because they altered the religion of the Jews by taking only parts of it. They viewed them basically as heretics. So that's what he's, he's talking to, a heretic woman who's had five husbands, and now the one she has isn't actually her husband, shacking up with a guy, it seems like. These are all like no-nos, right? Notice that Jesus spoke to her alone, apparently, uh, verse 8. For all his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. 
looks like it's just him and her, you know? Now, it's one thing for the Lord to do that. It's another thing for one of us men to to justify talking with women like this in private if we're already married, especially, you know, and say, well, Jesus did it. It's all I'm doing it. It's all I'm doing. It's like, wait a minute. This this is not a one-to-one comparison, you know. Be careful there. But it is important. He did speak to a Samaritan woman, apparently alone, at a public place where other people could have watched or seen or heard. We don't know if there were people there. But notice in verse 9, the woman speaks to Jesus. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now she knows this request is against social custom. Why are you doing this? This is against social custom. John the Apostle assures us that she was right to question Jesus um, because for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's not what she said. That's what John says. Okay, What she says is, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? John says, the reason why she's asking that is because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Here's a Jew having dealings with a Samaritan. Notice verse 10 where Jesus responds to her question in an interesting way. Jesus answered and said to her, her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She wanted to know why Jesus was breaking social custom. You being a Jew, interact with me a Samaritan. But Jesus shifts the discussion to the gift of God and he who he and who he is as the dispenser of living water. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He goes from his physical need, give me a drink, to her spiritual need, living water. See what he does there? There's real water there, and he's weary, according to verse 6, and he asks for water, but he goes from literal water to spiritual water. Notice verses 11 too. She appears to respond by thinly veiling her mockery. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? So I'm saying this, her response here seems to be um, like mockery. You don't have a bucket and the well is deep, you know. Put it bluntly. You think you're greater than Jacob? Sir? The answer is, yes, of course. Then notice in 13 and 14, Jesus continues moving the discussion from physical need to the need of the soul. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. The water and the physical well. But whoever drinks of the water that I 
shall give him. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So Jesus continues moving the discussion from physical need to the need of the soul. He is not talking about physical water. The language of living water and water springing up to eternal life from some sort of fountain in the future is actually rooted in the Old Testament. You see what Jesus is doing? He's going from natural water to spiritual water based on this woman's need in line with the teaching of the Old Testament that was looking forward to this very thing, a fountain springing up for sin and uncleanness, yet in the future. And he's basically identifying himself with the Old Testament language. The Old Testament had a doctrine of thirsty souls quenched by God himself by virtue of what God would do in the future. For instance, Isaiah 12, 2 and 3 says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs or from the wells of salvation. Interesting. Isaiah 55, 1. This is more familiar. Ho, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Now listen to John 7, 37 and 38. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Scriptures of the Old Testament, right? Jeremiah 2.13, the Lord calls himself the fountain of living waters. Zechariah 13.1 says, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. (coughs) Oh, that's not going to happen again. Jesus is the prophesied fountain. He is the well of salvation from whom comes the water of eternal life. Notice verse 15, the woman appears not to understand what Jesus is getting at. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. It's like, do you get what he's talking about or not? Come here to draw. It doesn't seem like she gets it. Verse 16. Jesus shifts from the gift of God, living water to eternal life, to the woman's history with men. Isn't this an interesting shift? Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Go call your husband and come here. What? He shifts from the gift of God, living water to eternal life, to the woman's history with men. The conversation gets personal now, but in a somewhat covert manner. Notice Jesus does not say, you wicked, adulterous woman, you have violated the seventh commandment as a way of life, haven't you? 
He kind of does it a little more covertly. In the first part of 17, I think the woman responds defensively, maybe hoping to hide her past from Jesus. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And then Jesus lays his cards on the table. You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. So first he agrees with her. I suppose she could have experienced a very brief sigh of relief, but only very briefly. You have well said, I have no husband. I agree with you. You don't have a husband, but you've had five in the past, and you've got this guy in your life now that's not a husband. So first he agrees with her. Then he exposes her sin and guilt. Then the woman, in verse 19, asserts something which indicates she is beginning to realize something about Jesus and then changes the subject, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. So after he exposes her sin and guilt, she says, the, then John says, the woman says to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now we could take that like more mockery. Oh yeah, you're a prophet. I remember studying this passage going, I don't think it's mockery. Maybe she was mocking him before. But the question that she asks is actually a profound one in light of the fact that she's a Samaritan and he's a Jew that's claiming to be the fulfillment of Old Testament languages about fountains for uncleanness that she wouldn't, as a Samaritan, have known much about because they only took Genesis through Revelation as the written word of God. They didn't take the prophets. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. That's actually a profound question. Now, after he gives the answer, look at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, uh, who is called Christ. Uh Uh-oh. She has a messianic consciousness, doesn't she? When he comes, he will tell us all things. That's a pretty good thing to know. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Very interesting. So you see why I don't think verse 19, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, uh, is, is mocking. I think she's going, oh, you know... I know that when Messiah comes, he'll, you know, he knows all things, and you know about me. Could it be? What do you say about true worship, Mr. Possib- Mr. Prophet, who's possibly the Messiah? You know what happens. Now at the, after the two days, verse 43, uh, excuse me, um, verse uh, 39. And many of the Samaritans of the city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. 
So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. What happened? She went back and she witnessed, she testified. This guy knew all about me. He's a prophet. He's Messiah, is he? I think she actually got saved. Um, And I think there's good reason for it. But her question about true worship indicates a heart that is being troubled in a good direction. If you know about my soiled past, do you know about acceptable worship too? I think the assumption is because if you're the Messiah, you will. Now, here's some concluding observations. First of all, we have here a good example of a person who did not understand what Jesus was getting at at first. Right? It seems like at first she doesn't understand... She's clueless. Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. At some point, um, that, that's the, the exact point where Jesus says, you don't get it, do you? You have need for the type of water that I'm talking about, but you don't recognize your need. Go call your husband. He uses the law to convict her of her sin. You, you can't come to the gospel yet. You're not ready. You don't get it. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. When the Messiah comes, he'll tell us all things. This one, Jesus, call him what you want. He told me everything about my past. Those are signals and signs that she didn't get it at first, but she started to slowly but surely connect dots, didn't she? It's not until verse 19 that she appears to finally understand that the person she is talking to is very unique. She goes from mockery of Jesus in verses 11 and 12 and 15 to concluding that he's a prophet, then bringing up a deep theological uh, question about acceptable public worship. This woman is starting to track. She's starting to connect dots. She's going from ignorance to truth, not the full body of truth, but just a nugget of truth, another nugget of truth, And then she starts to draw conclusions. This is how God works in the minds of men and women who hear about Jesus. Slowly but surely, they realize things about him that lead to other questions about spiritual things. If you are one of those persons who have heard about Jesus but have not received him, keep listening and keep asking questions, the answers of which concerning who he is and what he came to do are found in the Bible alone. Keep asking the questions. Keep listening. Because you must have proper knowledge about Jesus in order to come to him for the right reasons. You must have proper knowledge about yourself in order to come to Jesus for the right reasons as well. Second uh, observation is we have here a good example of the type of people Jesus came to seek and to save. This woman was a sinner. Jesus offered living water to her as such. Jesus offered forgiveness of sins and eternal life to her as a guilty, adulterous, Samaritan woman, full stop. That was her at the time, and he's offering her living water. 
He did not tell her, go home, kick the guy out, live adultery free for a while, throw off your Samaritan oddities, and then come look me up. He didn't tell her that, right? He spoke to her in her sinful state. He offered her the waters of salvation in her guilty state. What's the line in Paul? 1 Timothy 1.15. It is a trustworthy statement. Christ Jesus came into the world to save the righteous. Oops. To save sinners. What's the next line? Among whom I am chief, Paul says. The gospel, the good news about what God has done to deal with our sin problem, comes to needy sinners, it comes to helpless sinners, it comes to guilty sinners. And that's a part of the goodness of the good news. Sinners, as guilty sinners, have a safe place, have a refuge. Sinners have a safe place to get cured. There's a line in a hymn, in our hymn, though. I'm not sure if we've ever sung this hymn. But listen to 221. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest. Lay down, thou weary one. Lay down thy head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was, weary and worn and sad. I found in him a resting place, and he has made me glad. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give the living water, thirsty one. Stoop down and drink, excuse me, and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now I live in him. Well, I might as well read the last line. I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Look unto me. Thy morn shall rise, and all thy day be bright. I looked to Jesus, and I found in him my star, my sun. And in that light of life I'll walk till traveling days are done. Horatius Bonar, 1846. He and his brother write hymns, by the way. Um, I, I think that's crucial. We have here a good example of the type of people Jesus came to seek and to save. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Right? Third, we have here evidence that Jesus is very unique, illustrated by the information he possessed about this woman. He knew some things about her that she hadn't told him. Later in the story, we are told that the woman realized this. He told me all the things that I have done. So I don't think he just told her information that was out there on the street that every any Joe and Jane knew, everybody knew. I think he probably told her some things that she was hoping people didn't realize. His human mind was a recipient of information only God could know. The knowledge possessed by God was somehow communicated to the incarnate Son according to his human nature. He knew her past, he knew her sins, he knew her guilt, he knew her shame, he knew she had loose morals, he knew she was shacking up with a man. He knew she was a woman, an immoral woman, and a Samaritan woman. 
And yet he not only spoke to her in public, gently though with enough firmness to get her attention, he spoke the words of life to her. Uh, can I say it? We're not Pentecostals, okay, but hallelujah, what a savior. Okay, uh, Hymn number 175, we sing like Pentecostals sometimes. <laughs> But we don't hang from the chandeliers. But what a, this is like, really? He like crosses all these cultural boundaries, all the things, all the strikes were against her, right? Don't talk to her. Don't do it. You're the incarnate Lord of glory. You're too holy. She's too evil. She's too sinful. She's too bad. You know I, what I could hear? Methinks I can hear heaven screaming, get behind me, Satan. This is the exact type of person he came to save. And fourth, and finally, as we have seen before, as Jesus interacts with people, he constantly uses the Old Testament to help them realize who he is and what he came to do. Remember those texts I was reading from Isaiah and Zechariah and wherever else, Jeremiah? The living water, the fountain language, is in the Old Testament. Somehow, some way, Jesus connect, well, not somehow, some way. Jesus connects himself with that language as the embodiment of that to which the language pointed to. He's the one that we get water uh, cleansing that not only um, makes our dry palates moist, okay, but we get cleansing from the f bloody blood that comes out of the fountain of his veins, as the hymn writer says. He constantly does this bringing up themes from the Old Testament in such a way that he wanted the people to conclude that he was the Messiah, he was the Christ, he was the promised servant of the Old Testament, now incarnate in the person of Jesus. This argues that Jesus is not some flash-in-the-pan, fly-by charlatan. He is no here today, gone tomorrow, and soon forgotten figure of ancient history. He is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jews and Greeks. He is the only sacrifice for our sins. In him is life, and the life he, he has, he gives even eternal life. He is God's unique fountain for sin and uncleanness. He will have a people. He does have a people. They'll be from both Jews and Greeks, from all nations, tribes, tongues, and kindreds all throughout the globe. How do we know that? Well, the Bible says it, number one. And number two, you're listening to me preach him. Uh, so I think we learn at least those things from our passage. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the written word of God and preserving it so such that we can read it, I can preach it, we can contemplate these things and once again rejoice in such a large-hearted Savior who came when he was on the earth. He ate with um, publicans, with public sinners, with um, prostitutes, at least he seems to have talked to some, and this was against the cultural expectations, and yet these are the exact kind of people he came to save, like this woman before us, and like all of us.
May we see ourselves as this woman saw herself at some point as a guilty sinner in need of the cleansing power of the fountain of life, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now bless as we sing in thanks and, and take the supper, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.